0: You know, you ask people today, the average Christian, why did Jesus die on the cross? What do they say? Because he loved us. It was a demonstration of his love, and indeed it is. But Paul wants you to see that it's more than a demonstration of his love. It is indeed a demonstration of his righteousness.
1: Hello and welcome to Search the Scriptures, the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Carl Brogy. Dr. Berge is senior pastor at Community Bible Church in Beaufort, South Carolina. We are in a study of the book of Romans, and we have spent the past few days in Romans 3.24, looking at one of the most important passages in the entire Bible. It is these verses that tell us that we are by default unsaved and unrighteous because of our sin nature. But there is hope because God has provided a way of escape from eternal condemnation and that is through the blood of His Son, Jesus Christ, who died on a cross for the sin of the world. Along with everything else we've learned, we've picked up some important words and terms, and today we're introduced to the word propitiation.
0: There are three things that I want you to think about when you think about this word propitiation. First, the need for it, secondly, the author of it, and thirdly, the means to it. First, the need for propitiation. Now again, in Bible days, False gods would need to be propitiated. Why? Because they were viewed sometimes as irritable, as unpredictable, subject to moods and fits where they would fly off the handle. And so if a hurricane approached a land, they would say, well, the the god of hurricanes is angry, and we need to appease his anger. We need to appease his wrath. And so that was the thought in that day. Now contrast that kind of thinking with the god of the Bible. Because the God of the Bible is not subject to fit in moods. His wrath is not unpredictable. It's very predictable. It is always in response to sin. And so there's the need for propitiation. Also think about the author of propitiation. Again, in pagan religions, fearful that they had somehow offended their God, they would do something on their own to appease Him. So humans always initiated the process of propitiation. Contrast that with the use of the word in the Bible. It's not man who can propitiate God. It's not man who takes the initiative, but God takes the initiative. It's God to the rescue. For God so loved the world. That's God coming down in Christ to rescue us. Right after Adam sins, God comes into the garden. He says, where are you, Adam? and the simple answer is he is lost and God wants to show that to Adam who told you that you were naked who I have you eaten from the tree of which I commanded you not to eat what is this you have done God knew the answers to all those questions he knew what they had done but he wanted Adam and Eve to see what they had done that they needed to be forgiven and restored You would think that Adam, after he had committed that sin, would say, Oh, my Lord, you've been so kind and merciful. Oh, what have I done? Please have mercy on me. But no, man is not seeking God. He's running from God. He's hiding from God. Just as we read earlier in this chapter, there's none who seeks God. No, not one. So God comes to the rescue, and this is love, not that we love God but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Now look further into verse 25. When you think about the author of propitiation, it says that he, God, displayed publicly. The King James says he set forth. The English Standard Version says he put forward. He put forward, he set forth, he displayed publicly the Lord Jesus as a propitiation. So I want you to see the love, the initiative, began not with man, but with God. So there's the need, there's the author. Third, I want you to think about the means of propitiation. Again, in pagan religions, it was something that man did. Some material gift, some fruit or sacrifice that he would offer. But in the Bible's religion, it was something that God did. People in Paul's day again would say, well, the God of so-and-so is angry, let's appease him. It was a common everyday word. We we hardly use the word today in English, but it was a common day word in that day. You say, well, how ridiculous that if there's a hurricane or tornado, that there's some deity that is angry and we need to appease him. No more ridiculous today than when people bring their scapulas and confirmation certificates and baptism certificates and their golden rule and their good deeds, and a host of other things that they have done, somehow thinking that God will be satisfied. And many people are convinced that when they die and they meet God, God will say, oh, I know you. You're, you're a nice guy. Come on in. That's their view of God. And they do not understand that God hates sin, that God must be propitiated. And so all the way back in the book of Genesis, God began to teach Adam and Eve that fig leaf religion, what man can do through the work of his own hands, is not going to satisfy a holy God. And so, He makes them coats of skin. And so, Abel's blood sacrifice is accepted, and Cain's is rejected. And then God sets up the whole sacrificial system of the Old Testament. If you remember in that one section of the temple, the holiest place in the temple or earlier in the tabernacle, it was called the Holy of Holies. And the high priest went behind the curtain. Just one man could go and he went behind the curtain once a year and then just for a few moments. And behind that curtain was a box about the size of this pulpit turned sideways. It was called the Ark of the Covenant. Nothing like the movie, though I did not see the movie, but nothing like it. No, the the Ark of the Covenant was a box, and in it contained the second set of Ten Commandments, because the first were smashed due to the rebellion of the people. And it was a picture that they had rejected God's law. There was the butted rod of of Aaron. Remember, when they rejected Aaron's leadership, God did a miracle, and He took an old dead stick, a staff. And he made it come alive, and it budded, and there were almonds that grew on it. That was in the box, a symbol that they had rejected God's leadership. But then third, there was the jar of manna, a picture of God's provision where they said, we hate this manna, we're sick of this food. They rejected God's law, they rejected God's leadership, they rejected God's uh, provision. And so once a year on Yom Kippur, Yom Day Kippur atonement, on the day of atonement, the high priest would go in. And he would stand before that box, and he would take the blood of an innocent ram, an innocent lamb, and he would spill it on the top of what was called the mercy seat, or in Greek, the propitiatory seat. In the Greek translation, it's called the propitiatory seat. And what were they saying? That when God looked down on he- from heaven, He didn't see those objects that represented man's sin and rebellion. All He saw was the blood. Now, of course, the blood of bulls and goats can never take away sin. That was just symbolic. As our baptism is symbolic looking back, those acts were symbolic looking forward to the Lamb of God who'd take away the sins of the world. And so God is angry. He needs to be propitiated. His wrath needs to be averted. But we don't like to think of God in those terms today, that God is a God of wrath. Paul has already introduced us in Romans 1.18 to the wrath of God. When you read 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, it says, The Lord Jesus will be revealed from heaven with His mighty angels in flaming fire, dealing out retribution to those who do not know God. Do you understand that God is a God of wrath, that His wrath is real, that it is indeed coming and when it comes, it will come for all of eternity? In Hebrews chapter 10, it says, we read of a terrifying expectation of judgment and the fury of a fire that will consume God's adversaries. We often like to quote verses like this, God is love, but we don't like to quote a verse later used in the same epistle, Hebrews twelve twenty nine, where it says, God is a consuming fire. Most of us, if we think of God, even in terms of fire, we think of him as soft candlelight or a warm fireplace, but not in scripture. God is a consuming fire. You know, I took out this week every major evangelical tract that has been used in the last 25 years. I have them all. I used to train people with them all, and I would be rather frustrated at times because in none of them, not one, is there any mention of hell. There's not a single mention of the eternal retribution of God. Now, I'm not one of these guys who want to create a tract with people, you know, in flames and all that, trying to be dramatic. But you cannot understand propitiation. You cannot understand the cross unless you understand that God is a God of wrath and His wrath must be satisfied, whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation in His blood. So God is propitiated not by something that we do, but in the blood of Jesus Christ. Again, in justification, God's holiness is satisfied. In redemption, God's justice is satisfied. But in propitiation, the heart of God is satisfied. His righteous anger against us is satisfied. See, most people think of the judgment of God as something way out there in the future where God's got the big scale in the sky and if the good outweigh the bad, he'll say, come on in, you've made it. When the truth of the matter is, is that the Bible teaches man is already judged. Jesus said, he who believes in the Son has life. He who does not believe, the wrath of God abides upon him. He said, the son of man did not come into the world to condemn the world, but the world might be saved through him. He who does not believe is condemned already. The judgment's already been settled. God has already said, we are guilty. We're already on the broad road that is leading to destruction. That's why Ephesians 2, 3 says, by nature, we're children of wrath. He didn't come into the world to condemn the world. You've already been condemned. You've already been tried and found guilty. He came to save the world, to deliver the world. And so it was through the blood of Christ that God's wounded heart was satisfied. God's righteousness was so offended by the sin of man that there came a point in the history of the world where the Lord was sorry that he had made man on the earth, Genesis 6, and he was grieved in his heart. And so God's justice had to be satisfied. But listen, because the Father was propitiated, understand this, understand the implications for your life if you've been saved from God's wrath. God's not angry with you. His anger has been burned out in a substitute, His Son. Don't ever think, well, you know, I'm in trouble today because God's angry with me. He doesn't deal with you in anger if you have truly, genuinely been saved. The Bible says in 1 John, there is no fear in love. Perfect love casts out fear because fear involves punishment, and the one who fears is not perfected in love. God doesn't deal with you in anger. Now, he will deal with you as a loving father, as a divine disciplinarian, but not out of his anger because his anger has been poured out in Jesus Christ. Here's a good way to think of propitiation. God gave of Himself to save us from Himself. And we will see that indeed the giving of the Son of God, as John three sixteen and Romans 5, 8 indicates, is a demonstration of God's love. People say, well, how could it be a demonstration? The Father's not the one who died. Because in New Testament theology, God is one, as in Old Testament theology, and it is impossible to separate the members of the Godhead. And so God gave a demonstration of his love, and he burned his wrath out on Christ. He gave of himself to save us from himself, namely his just wrath. Again, in verse 25, notice, again, I want you to think about the means by which it comes into your life, whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation in his blood through faith. Two words you want to put together, the word blood and the word faith. Remember, the wages of sin is death. And so since the life is in the blood, the Bible says without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. And so propitiation cannot be had without blood. But it cannot be operative in your life but by faith. Just because Jesus died for the propitiation of the sins of the whole world doesn't mean the whole world's saved. You have to come through faith, all right? So there's the fact that God redeemed us through the cross. God was propitiated through the cross. Third and finally, I want you to see that God's righteousness was demonstrated through the cross. It was a demonstration. Look, if you will, in verse 25, whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation in His blood through faith. This was to demonstrate His righteousness because in the forbearance of God, He passed over the sins previously committed. Underline that word demonstration. Now listen. This is a challenging section. Don't miss it. It's very important. It's the most difficult part of the whole paragraph, and I want you to pay attention. And again, we're not hearing sermons like this anymore in the church. There's preachers who stand up, who tickle your ears, who make you feel good. You don't need a Bible to hear it. No wonder we have so many false brethren in the church today. No wonder we have so many immature Christians. Underline the word demonstrate in verse 25, and then again in verse 26, for the demonstration I save His righteousness at the present time. Three aspects to demonstration that are brought out in these two verses. First, the demonstration of God's justice concerning the past. There's a demonstration of God's justice concerning the past. Now, in order to understand this demonstration of God's justice and what took place, Paul is making a deliberate contrast between the past and the present. Notice verse 25. In the forbearance of God, he passed over the sins previously committed. The Holy Spirit here mentions the forbearance of God. Another translation says God was waiting patiently. Or it speaks of God's restraint. God temporarily withheld judgment because in his forbearance, in his patience, he was looking forward to the cross of Jesus Christ. And so God was able to pass over the sins previously committed in Old Testament times. God was looking forward to the death of Christ. So the death of Christ was a retroactive death. It reached all the way back into time for all of the prior generations, just as Jesus, the Bible says, died for your sin and you weren't even alive and hadn't committed the first when he came to this earth. For by one offering, the Bible says, he has perfected for all time those who are perfected. So there's a demonstration of his righteousness concerning the past. God didn't condone sin when he didn't smush man when he sinned. God wasn't acting unjustly when he did nothing. God was acting patiently. He was acting forbearingly. He was looking forward to that sacrifice of His Son. Secondly, the demonstration of God's justice concerning the present. Again, a second time in verse 26, the word is used. For the demonstration, I say, of His righteousness at the present time. Again, there's a contrast here. Don't miss it. Between the past and the present. God didn't immediately punish sins in Old Testament times. That's not because he was condoning evil or acting any less justly. Again, he was looking forward to that time. You know, you ask people today, the average Christian, why did Jesus die on the cross? What do they say? Because he loved us. It was a demonstration of his love, and indeed it is. But Paul wants you to see that it's more than a demonstration of his love. It is indeed a demonstration of His righteousness, for the demonstration, I say, of His righteousness. Don't miss that. You ask, well, why does God's righteousness need to be declared, preached, demonstrated, witnessed to? Because God does not want anyone to misunderstand that God did not overlook sin in ages past. God was patiently forbearing to the time when his son in time and space would die for it. A demonstration, I say, at the present time in the first century when the cross of Christ was enacted. And he wants you to see that. Why did he do all of this? Look at it. So that, you could say in order that, here's the reason. So that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. He is just. He does not violate his righteousness, and at the same time, he is the justifier. If I'm the employer, you're the employee. If God is the justifier, we are the justifies. In other words, we don't justify ourselves. He's the one who justifies us. He's the one who makes this declaration. And at the same time, he can be just, he can be righteous. He's not violating his character. At the same time, he can be just and the justifier, the one who declares righteous, the man, the woman, the boy, or girl who puts their faith in Jesus Christ. Now, there's one other facet of demonstration, and that's the demonstration of God's justice concerning you. Again, I hope you didn't miss it. Three times in this paragraph, he mentions faith. In verse 22, I have it circled here in my Bible. A second time in verse 25. And a third time in verse 26. What Jesus did can only be received by faith. Like a child who comes in humility, in total dependence, we must come in that way. Now, please understand, it is not faith that saves. Don't ever say, I'm saved by faith. Now, I understand statements like that contextually, but that's not totally accurate. I uh, assume when you make a statement like that, you're doing it within the context of the New Testament, that you're saved by grace through faith. Because faith doesn't save. Faith has no merit in itself. People all the time say, I have faith. What do you mean? Well, you know, we're in a mess, and we ask God for help, and He helped us. You see, I have faith. It's not faith in faith that saves you. It's the object of our faith that saves. It is faith in Christ alone. And so God invites the helpless sinner to come and to put their confidence in the one who propitiated the Father, the one who redeemed us, the one who can justify us and declare us right in His sight. And so the holy wrath of God was burned out in the Son of God. I'll never forget years ago reading the story about a prairie fire that happened in the middle section of our nation. Uh, They tell me when those prairie fires come, they can come with an incredible speed and fierceness to them. This one family, they they saw it coming in a distance, the smoke was coming, it was coming fast, this was over 100 years ago. And so the man said, we, we need to do something. We need to do something fast. And so he went into his fireplace and he got some embers. And he walked out into his field and he lit it on fire. And he allowed a, a large section of his field began to burn out. And then he gathered his family and they backed around and they went into that section that had been burned out. And then the flames came at a great speed and fierceness. But because he had stood in the place that had been burned out, because he was in the place of propitiation. The fire just went right around them, and they were totally spared from the fire. Listen, this morning, you are either in Christ, in the one whose wrath, uh, who took the Father's wrath in your place, or the wrath of God was burned out on him, or you're out of Christ. There's no in between. I was driving to a wedding yesterday afternoon in North Carolina and I was calling some of our visitors and I love to call visitors when they invite me to do so and I will often ask them, how sure are you on a scale of zero to 100 if you'll die that you'll go to heaven? And people say, oh, 25, 50, 75. Listen, you're not 25% saved. You're either in Christ where the Father's wrath is satisfied or you're outside of Christ and under the wrath of God. There is no in between. And what I cannot often comprehend except by looking at the revelation of Scripture that tells me what we're all like by nature, apart from the mercy of God, I'll invite someone. Would you like to be sure? Well, yeah, I, I guess. You guess? <laughs> you guess? I'd love to meet with you if you allow me the privilege. That, well, I'm just so busy, you know, and you're busy? The single most important decision you will ever make in life is to be delivered from the wrath of God and you're too busy. You have a man of God willing to open up the Word of God and tell you how you can be short and you're too busy. See, we have a distorted view of God. We don't understand what God is really like in our day. And you're either standing on the propitiatory ground of Christ through His shed blood or you are not. Now this is a message that if you understand this paragraph of Scripture, it will change your life. The good news is that God has shown mercy for those who are totally undeserving. The good news is that God by His grace can turn away His wrath. The good news is that God's wrath was born out in His Son. And if you've never received him, let me encourage you today before you leave this place to flee to him for salvation. Christ wants to be your redeemer. He wants to be your propitiatory sacrifice. But you must come by faith alone, sola fide. Faith alone in Christ alone. If you receive Jesus Christ, then the demonstration of justice that you deserve will have been satisfied in God's Son through Christ's blood. But if you do not receive Him, and you die before this day is over or Jesus returns, you will see another demonstration of His justice. And you will remember pastors like me who pleaded with you earnestly, passionately, longingly to come to Christ. Now I realize the majority of us here today have met Christ. But we have become so pacified by the world, by all of its entertainments, that weeks and months and sometimes years go by for some of us, and we never even care about someone's soul. We're talking about eternal things here. This life is short and will soon be passed. Listen, only what is done for Christ will last. God's given you a brand new week, and I want you with me to be agents of God who, because of this magnificent standing we have in Christ, holy, forgiven, righteous in the sight of God, fully accepted, not on performance, but on the work of Christ, to be motivated by that truth to go this week to speak to someone about the Savior. Praise God that He's redeemed His people. Praise God that He's propitiated His wrath. And praise God that He has demonstrated His justice through the whole process. Now, our Father, we thank You today for the magnificent grace shown us in Jesus Christ. I pray today for someone who is here who's never responded to that. Today, You said, is the day of salvation. I pray You'd help some dear soul to get right even now. Your desire, you said, is that none should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Thank you that whoever will call upon the name of Jesus can be saved. Would you today say, Lord Jesus, save me. Help someone, Father, to do that. Father, help us to think our thoughts after yours. That there's nothing we can do to make you love us more. There's nothing... We can do to make you love us less. You cannot love us more. You cannot love us less because our lovability and acceptability is through the redemption in Christ Jesus. Thank you for this new position that we have that motivates us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires and to live holy and righteously in this age. Father, we live in a day when the church has become lukewarm. And we acknowledge that. We see it everywhere. The Bible prophesies it. Help us, O oh God, not to be caught up in the lukewarmness of this age. Help us while there is still opportunity before the night comes to warn people, even this week, we pray in Jesus' name, amen.
1: For a copy of today's study from Romans three twenty-four. Visit our website, searchthescriptures.org and look for program ROM15 entitled The Power of the Cross. You can also hear this and all of Pastor Brogy's messages on our Search the Scriptures app available from the iTunes Store and Google Play Store. And of course, you can always call us at 877-787-7478 and request a CD or DVD copy of this or any of the messages in our series from Romans. And when you contact us, please consider helping support this ministry with a one-time gift or through a monthly partnership. Thank you. Tomorrow, Pastor Carl's wife, Audrey, is in this time slot with her program for women, Mothering from the Heart. And when we return Monday, we'll look at a theological collision. Join us then as we search the Scripture.